Welcome to Prickly and Blooming, hosted by Jesse Browning and brought to you by LaJoy Society. At age 35, Jesse theoretically adored her life. She was a mama to four children and owned multiple businesses with her husband. But without an ability to cope or care for herself, an isolating darkness crept in. Through reckless self-care, therapy, and lots of candor, Jessie found her joy again. She has created LaJoy Society to embolden others to do the same. Each week, we will meet a woman who has an authentic story to share. Undoubtedly, Jessie will be sharing her big heart, unusual life, and countless theories with you along the way. Now, here's Jessie. Hi, friends. We're back with our second installment of my conversation with Lorna for our special off-season, kind of off-topic um, between season one and two of Prickling Blooming. You know, and Lorna and I talked about how it's where normally the show is like a personal narrative and we're talking about our dark times and how we have to include those in our history. And you can completely relate that to our country. You know, if we can take the time to talk about where we came from. Maybe we can actually figure out where we can go. So um, this episode is about the social construction of race. You know, we didn't group ourselves as humans by our race for a very long time. It's um, a relatively modern practice um, that dates back to the 1600s. And so let's talk about why we started doing that. Um, You know, it's not something that has been going on for, you know, a very long time in in the grand scheme of things. So Lorna takes us on a little journey to explain where that came from. And So if you didn't listen to last week's episode with Lorna, um, let me tell you a little about Lorna. I'm going to read her little bio again. So Lorna uh, Hemosira is is an assistant professor in the College of Education at the University of Texas at Austin. Her research includes school-to-prison pipeline and restorative practices, and she is a proponent of utilizing trauma-informed practices in schools. Lorna also creates and facilitates interactive workshops to promote cultural understanding. Lorna holds a PhD in education, leadership, and policy, a master's degree in counseling, and a bachelor's degree in psychology. Prior to her current work, Lorna led college access and dropout prevention programs. When she's not working, Lorna enjoys cooking, spending time with her family and friends, practicing yoga, and traveling with her husband. And I felt so incredibly like honored that Lorna reached out and asked if we could, you know, have these discussions right now, as it's obviously such a topic on on the forefront of everybody's mind is how we can learn more and do better and I absolutely you know resounding absolutely reply to her asking if we could record these uh, conversation Um, and she does this work and she's studied this stuff and I think you guys are gonna enjoy hearing what Lorna has to share with us so here we are with part two all right, here we are again with Lorna. Hello again. Hi, Jesse. Hi, I'm excited. We're continuing our conversation we had last week. Um, if y'all haven't listened to the most previous um, bonus episode from um, Lorna, why don't you hit that one up first? Because, I mean, not necessarily. You can digest them separately. But if you'd like to go back, that'd be great. Um, Lorna is going to discuss the social construction of race with us today, because uh, guess what? 
we created it. <laughs> it's a concept created uh, like gender. So Lorna. Yes. Yes, Jesse. Thank you for having me <laughs> uh, back. Of course. Of course. <laughs> I'm so happy to be doing this. Oh, thank you. So bestow your wisdom <laughs> upon us. <laughs> so, um, so just to wrap up and tie back to our last episode where we talked about housing and who had access to home ownership, you know, where people live is also where they go to school. And so, um, you know, especially with public schools, you go to your neighborhood schools. So when where people live is segregated, um, so are schools. Um, And when the law says segregation is legal, then schools were segregated as well. So and it wasn't until um, the Civil Rights Act where um, it wasn't until the Civil Rights Act where segregation and discrimination was made illegal. Um, Which, like we said in the last episode, was only about 22% of our country's history of, you know, the entire kind of, you can almost break it down to thirds, like you said, you know, of our country, the, a third being a time of slavery, a third of the time being the segregation of separate but equal stuff. And so only in the last recent history have we been in the last, and it's actually only 22% of time of our country of a new era, if you will. What, what would be the term for this um, I, time? Post-civil rights. Act. Okay. Post-civil mm-hmm. rights era. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and just kind of to um, tie things to today, you know, the civil rights act was a movement kind of like what we're seeing today where there was a lot of peaceful protest uh, led by Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, and often those peaceful protests turned violent Um you know, so we saw dogs that were unleashed on people. We saw water hoses. Yes, in addition to that, um, in addition to other tactics that are that are employed, <laughs> employed. <laughs> and, and ultimately, you know, he was assassinated. Exactly, exactly, and um, it, and at the end, or what came out of it was the Civil Rights Act which made segregation and discrimination illegal. And it made it illegal through funding in schools particularly. So we still hear the term and we still hear the term with schools, Title I schools. Um, That comes from the Civil Rights Act, which gave additional funding to schools with high numbers of low-income children. So that was the legislation's way of incentivizing desegregation. Right. Because often African-American uh, kids and kids of color, because of, ha- of housing discrimination, um, came from impoverished backgrounds because they didn't have access to that wealth. So many were and still are low income. And so the law said, if your school has a high number of low income children, you get additional funding through Title I. And it all, and together with Title VI, which prohibits discrimination in programs and activities that receive federal funding, that's how schools desegregated. Because, um, you know, Brown versus Board of Education uh, was uh, an attempt, one of many attempts, to desegregate schools. And that happened 10 years before the Civil Rights Act. It took 10 years from that point for schools to desegregate. But was there, there was no, I mean, 
it's terrible that that's what it takes. There was no incentivization exactly. to do it. Exactly. It was the money. You can't. Yeah. It's unfortunate that a lot of it comes down to money. It often, you know? yeah. It yeah, often I mean, does. you would hope that institutions would like to do the right thing. And I'm mm-hmm. doing that in quotes right now, but um, real world, yeah. it's fun funding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it's a truth though. Yep. It is. Yeah. So, you know, we saw, we covered a couple of um, laws in our previous episode that referenced white folks and Negroes and black folks. And so where does this whole, and so it was written into laws. So what is this concept of race, right? Where did it come from? Where did this, right. Yeah. I mean, it's been around our entire lives, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean it's been around for, uh, ever <laughs> yes. like yes. what's another way what's another time <laughs> yes and it's so such a part of our um our social um society oh, right God. now we feel it out in every form yes. though yes. too you know like yes. any any form doctors dentists school yes like i mean i feel like fucking fill it out on internet yeah applications and and so we we are identifying by race now because of things like that where we're always you know kind of asked to identify ourselves by race name address phone number race absolutely and so gender we see each other through those lenses too and so i i like to start um, with talking about terms first, the definitions, because often the words race and culture and ethnicity are used interchangeably. And yeah, so I just want to, you know, lay a foundation for how I'm going to use those terms. And I like to reference Smedley and Smedley. It's a mother-son duo, and they wrote um, many articles and books. Um, Audrey Smedley is an anthropologist, And her son, Brian, um, works um, in health, in the field of health. And so so this is our definition. So ethnicity is clusters of people who have common culture traits. And culture traits are language, geographic locale or place of origin, religion, sense of history, traditions, values, food habits. Those are culture traits. And culture is external it's acquired and transmissible to others. So I like to use the example of, you know, I was born and raised in San Diego, California, but I've been living here in Texas since, um, I've been living here in Texas for 20 years now. So, (laughs) (laughs) So, and now I live in Texas. I use the term y'all. I really like Mm y'all. It's It's a great word. It's a great (laughs) word. It's four letters. It's uh, it's inclusive of everybody. Yes. Yes, it's it's gender neutral. It's it, it's inclusive. So I never used y'all before. Um, Neither did I. <laughs> but, Massachusetts was use guys. Use guys. Use guys. Use guys. <laughs> uh, so now I use y'all. I I own cowboy boots. I didn't before. You know, my sister comes and she can wear my cowboy boots when she visits. So these are examples of culture. So like- Mm-hmm. That can change. Can change. It's external. It you know. It's transmissible. You know. I eat all kinds of barbecue now. Texas barbecue now. I didn't before. 
So, so the according to Smedley, the anthropological, you know, definition of culture has to do with this external acquired, you know, tra- uh, traits. Okay. Um, ethnicity. Okay. Yeah. Is, let's get back to it. Yeah. Yes, is clusters of people with common culture traits. And okay. So, what's an example of that? So, you we see it in our in our form, our um, the forms that we fill out. They ask, "What's your race?" And then they ask your ethnicity, are you Hispanic or not Hispanic? Right? And that's an ethnicity. So what's another ethnicity? Um, so I'm Filipina. My okay. parents are from the Philippines. Um, I identify as Filipina American. So that's an ethnicity. And mm-hmm. But I would belong to the category, the race category of Asian. Okay. All right. You know. So why is there never anything else... In the ethnicity section, but it's like Hispanic or non-Hispanic. Because, and this is, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> like it just, it just, just like, that's why I was like, well, wait a second. Yeah, yes. Yes. So, because, so this is where race comes in. So okay. anthropologically um, cl- and classically, there were three racial classifications, three race classifications, which historically was called Mongoloid, Negroid, and Caucasoid which today would be known as Asian, Mongoloid, Black, um, Negroid, and White for Caucasoid. So, um, and now in government forms, there are options to, um, the fourth option is if you're a Native person or an Indigenous person. But where do Hispanic and Latinos fit into that? Are they white? Are they, you know? Um, And then we also have folks who... um, are not just one race. Yeah. So ethnic. So this is why we only have that question for Hispanic or Latinos because they don't fit necessarily into the classic um, racial classifications. Um, technically, um, folks could put themselves as white and being um, Hispanic Latino, or indigenous and being Hispanic Latino. Or, you know, however they identify. So my husband is Latino. And so he doesn't feel like he's white. And so he answers other for the race. And then he puts Hispanic Latino for ethnicity. But it it goes to show, all of this goes to show, like you said earlier, that this was all made up by people. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Yes. to classify people. And I get it, you know, classification can be useful. But, and so these classifications are human made. And genetically, humans of all races, we are 99.9% alike. If someone needs a heart transplant, if someone needs, you know, any a blood transfusion, you know, we are all human beings. So we, organs can be transplanted. Blood can be transfused. We are all human beings. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, isn't it, wasn't it an Oprah, um, Shades of a Single Protein? Uh, mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And it, and it has to do with physical adaptations mm-hmm. to environmental factors, you know? So darker skin absorbs vitamin D, um, at a slower rate because folks with darker skin typically lived in climates where the sun was shining almost all the time. 
and vitamin D is an important thing we get from the sun. So if you're just processing too much vitamin D, that's no good. So lighter skin processes vitamin D a little faster. Because we generally were in a less sunny area. Exactly. And so and so here's a, a, an example of, you know, so we in the U.S. have been kind of conditioned to wear sunscreen and don't be in the sun too much. Well, that applies to lighter skin. Mm-hmm. Right? So yeah. if you're yeah. blocking, you know, vitamin D from the sun, uh, uh, getting vitamin D from the sun, if you have darker skin you know, you're not necessarily going to be burned in the same way and you need that vitamin D because your skin processes it differently. So having blanket statements that actually don't apply to everybody is part of, you know, the systemic racism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) So race and identity, we did not as people always identify by race. Um, folks identified by kinship. You know, we still see last names like Johnson and Stevenson. And if you live in Iceland, then you have daughter as part of your last name if you're female. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they do the father's name. And if you're a son, you attach son to the end. If you're a daughter, you attach daughter to the end of it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. D-O-T-T-I-R. So... Historically, people identified by kinship, you know, who was who who they were related to by occupation. We see, you know, like uh, shoemakers, shoemaker. Yeah. Cobbler, cobblers, if you will. Exactly. <laughs> that's, the, that's the proper word. Yes. Baker, you know, Smith. And we still see these in last names. And then religion, you know, uh, unfortunately, a lot of warring happens by religion. And we see that among people who may look the same, who may belong to the same racial category, but because they have very different religions, you know, they would not identify together. Um, so f- that's how folks um, traditionally identified themselves. And like the time period we're talking about, I think you're about to get to that. Yeah, yes. Uh, it like was, this would be, this is how we kind of categorize ourselves pre-slavery. Yes, yes. And it was slavery that um, created a need for um, identifying by race. And so um, chattel slavery is what we saw here and experienced here in the United States. And this was, chattel slavery was unlike indentured servitude, where you can work your debt off and then be free. Um, if someone was enslaved under chattel slavery, they were enslaved for life. Their children were also enslaved. There were no individual rights for enslaved people. They couldn't learn to read or write. Um, that was illegal. Um, couldn't be married. That was illegal. Couldn't gather together. That was illegal, like no rights at all. And it emerged, this concept of chattel slavery emerged due to the high profitability of lifetime enslavement. Because before um, chattel slavery was widespread, there was a lot of indentured servitude, right? So people who uh, racially would be classified as black and white, 
they were indentured servants. Um, And that would mean that, you know, if someone wanted to come to what is now the U.S. from, say, Europe, and they didn't have enough money for for ship passage to the U.S., they can go to a person who did have the money and say, hey, will you pay for my passage and I will work it off for you. I'll be your, I'll be your servant until I work off my debt. So that, that's indentured servitude. And that happened a lot. And there was a lot of, you know, also abuse of power in that scenario. So someone might pay off their debt and then be told, no, you haven't paid off your debt. Um, but, but there were black indentured servants and there were white indentured servants. Um, which is why in our last episode that the the Naturalization Act talked about free white uh, citizens because they were also white citizens who were not free. They were indentured servants. But it became it it became more profitable to to utilize this system of chattel slavery instead of indentured servitude. Because with chattel slavery, you know, the rebellions and rising up didn't happen. And there wasn't this, okay, once you pay off your debt, you're free. And there, Bacon's Rebellion is a great example of where indentured servants would rise up and say, hey, we don't, you know, don't treat us like this. This is not right. And it was, there were actually thousands of white indentured servants fighting alongside thousands of black indentured servants during the time. So this quote unquote solution of chattel slavery replaced indentured servitude. And then this is where race became important because how can you, you know, when they were indentured servants, they were of different races, but when chattel slavery was, um, was when, people from Africa were subjected to chattel slavery, then visually you can see, you know, if this person has dark skin, then they are likely enslaved. And so that's where identification by race became widespread. And I'm talking about here in the U.S. Um, But also, I mean, it happened throughout um, South America as well and other places, but but I'm specifically talking about the U.S. So race became justification for slavery and exploitation. So this whole system of now now under chattel slavery, it was people from Africa, people with dark skin, who were targeted as to be enslaved. And part of the appeal was that there were so many languages spoken, right, in Africa. And so when you can take people from there and, and mix them such that they don't speak the same language, then, it's, then it makes it difficult for them to communicate and, uh, and fight back, basically. So, so ra- and so then race became used to divide people to say one race is better than the other, to, um, to create an us versus them, mm-hmm. to, um, and, then, and then race was used to say that some people are smarter or more moral or more intellectual 
And, you know, even during World War II and the Nazis, they were trying very, there was science happening to try to justify that a certain race and certain physical characteristics were associated with superiority. Superiority as a human being. So all of this was made up. Yes. They were trying to create science to justify, yeah. And the, and the science did not. Not. Because <laughs> it's not true. Not true. <laughs> <laughs> but how many Jing. people, yes, how many people were subjected to this? So this is where race, this is where identifying by race and by skin color became widespread. Um, and so this construction of a white race came with social benefits. And we saw that in the last episode where if you were white and free, you could be a citizen of the United States, therefore you could own land. So, so you know, I, I, in my research, I just got curious. I was curious how many of the U.S. population, how many people in the U.S. population were enslaved and how many were free. And so that one of the earliest censuses, 1860, there were 31 million free inhabitants of the U.S., and there were 4 million or 13% of the whole U.S. population was enslaved, which is huge. And in some southern states, so that's for the whole population of the U.S. at the time. And so in some southern states, more than 50% of the population was enslaved, more than wow. 50%. Right. So it was more concentrated in the South, we know. So yes. if there was 3 million, 31, sorry, 31 mm-hmm. million free and four. So we were, we're about a total of 35 million mm-hmm. in 1860. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Slave labor, as we know, was predominantly agricultural. So cotton, tobacco, uh, sugar. These, this is the um, agricultural labor that's difficult. You're under the sun. And that's the work that um, many enslaved Um, people were subjected to. Trades and training were benefits reserved for white people. Education, as we talked already about, was prohibited. Ownership of anything was prohibited. And if you, just like anything, if you want to process more cotton or process more sugar or process more, you know, whatever, to do that, you would get more machines to increase production. Well, back then, it was enslaved people. So, yes. Human power. Human power. So folks could, owners, uh, I don't even like using the word owners, but they could increase their slave holdings by purchasing more enslaved people or because we're all human beings, what happened a lot was that enslaved women were raped. And so then you, nine months later, you have a baby who the laws say are also enslaved and have no rights either. So when you have a society that is divided uh, by race, what then happens when you have a baby who's half black and half white? How does that fit into that equation? It, It doesn't fit into the equation. So new rules were developed. And one of those rules was the hypo-descent rule, which said that any person with known Black ancestry is considered Black. So when you have these babies that were 
a result of rape by a white man of a black woman, this new rule says any person with known black ancestry is considered black. And that's an ugly thing to think about, but it is the ugly part of our history, you know? And I saw, I saw a post recently about, it was a teacher who posted about trauma and intergenerational trauma. And you and I talked uh-huh. about this, Jesse. Yes, we talked about it in uh, your episode. They'll be out in season two. We did. Yep. Yes. Gabor. Gabor Mate. And, um, and so the trauma, when it happens to a person, can also be passed down to um, their descendants. And so that has happened with slavery as well. And so I saw a post from a woman who said, you know, what I see is trauma, is is the effects of trauma. And we need, and the antidote to trauma is love and relationship. And so the pushback, I also saw pushback to that. And I, I, I was so, it, it warmed my heart to see that post. Um, and the pushback was, well, there was trauma in, um, there was trauma in World War II in Pearl Harbor. Um, wh- why aren't we? Why aren't we? Why aren't we saying the same thing? And and my response to that is, um, there trauma. There are different types of trauma, and that comparison is apples and oranges. Both are fruit. Both are trauma, but one is acute. It happened, you know in one instance, and the other is pervasive. It happened over for more than 300 years, generations upon generations, and there was raping, and there was, you know, no rights whatsoever, and um, no education. And so that that is the difference. And um, so when folks say to me now, Lorna, that was a long time ago. Yes, it's part of our history. Why do we have to talk about it? we're still living on that foundation that we have not acknowledged. We have not fully acknowledged as a country. And so, you know, in my presentation, I have a picture of uh, President Barack Obama and um, Tiger Woods. And, you know, we have come a long way. There have been a lot of Black achievements. You know, we had our first Black president, two terms. Tiger Woods, despite his personal choices, you know, broke a lot of barriers (laughs) in golf. But yeah. really, President Obama is half white and half black. His mom is white and his dad is black. And Tiger Woods is half Asian and half black. His mom is Thai and his dad is black. Why do we call them black? Why do we call these black achievements? Because even though we've rejected slavery, we're still descendants of that social, uh, the social construct of it. And so that rule of hypodescent if you have any known black history, ancestry, you're considered black, we're still living by that rule today, right? We technically should be calling them biracial or half black, half white, half black, half Asian. But we still live by these social rules because they have been embedded in how we see each other and how we organize our society, even though the actual law of slavery has has long been um, abolished, except for as um, 
except for if convicted of a crime. Yes. Yep. Yes. Um, And even though the civil rights has passed, you know, how we learn to see each other, what what was uplifted in movies and in books, it has had a lasting effect on us. So I like to end this segment with the title of Smedley and Smedley, one of their articles, which is called Race as Biology is Fiction, but Racism as a Social Problem is Real. Because that's the thesis of it. And I hear people say, you know, I don't believe in race. I'm a human being. My race is the human race. And I agree. We are all human beings. But we but I I I love that title, Smedley and Smedley title, because it's a beautiful thing to see everybody as human beings, but we cannot ignore, we cannot ignore how society has constructed itself here in the United States such that racism still is a problem. Right. Right. We're denying the identity and the experiences. Exactly. And we say we're all one. Exactly. Exactly. Like we can have differences, but let's, uh, we can celebrate them. Yes. Instead of condemning them. And also recognizing the lived experiences, which is why I love your podcast, because it's by hearing other stories, giving space, giving a safe space to hear, for somebody to share their story. That's that's part of the healing, is to acknowledge your story in the presence of another and to be affirmed for your story, no matter how you know, challenging it might be or hard to talk about once we get it out and we're acknowledged for our story. That's when healing can begin. And again, we know that on the individual level, it works on the societal level too. We need to talk about in detail about the wrongs of the past and the difficult parts of the past, the 78% of the history of this country. We need to acknowledge it. And so thank you for this platform using your platform in this way jesse of course i'm happy to do this uh, grateful to do this um it's a amazing um side effect of having you know this is my project (laughs) i can do what i want exactly like you said i know it's off topic and i was like i can make this up you know (laughs) off season off topic that's right so I, I wanted to share just some some entry points for folks. Perfect. Yeah. Yes. Tell us all about them and um, they will be linked. Awesome. In the show notes. So part of what we, you know, first of all, the definition of love is action plus affection. Affection alone is not necessarily love and action, action alone is not. plus affection. Oh, and this is a total, I wrote this down where, um, you know, the antidote. Uh, is love and blah, blah, blah. The, um, Gabor talks about that with um, addiction as well. You know, the antidote to addiction is connection. Yes. So anyway. Yes. Anyway, total Gabor yes. side note. I love it. And so some, so some folks are like, I don't know what to do. What action yeah. can I take? Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. And so that example of the Gatorade, you know, for some people, the action could be attending the protests and that's great. But for some other people, um, that might not be speaking to them. So, And for all of us, we can all do our part to just learn more. So to develop cultural competence, the the research says that you have to address your own attitudes, your knowledge, 
your skills and your awareness. And so, you know, reflecting on what your attitude is, what your biases are, we all have them to recognize what they are. And um, is it something that you, is that the way that you want to continue thinking and living? Or is that something that you just inherited from your parents or your grandparents or from society or from the textbooks that you had access to in school that, that did not cover the totality of our history? Yes. So one, interrogating, interrogating, honestly, our own attitudes and then building your knowledge. You know, I have uh, dear African-American friends and, and many of them are weary and to turn to them, to ask them to educate you. No, that is, no. that is lazy. That's lazy. Especially now with the internet, we can educate ourselves. And so... So I have three kind of entry points for folks, and this is just the tip of the iceberg. So the first is the TED Talk. It's only 18 minutes, and so, um, so that's a great um, entry point. It's called The Danger of a Single Story. And if you just Google that, it'll come up. Oh, but you're going to have a link to it. Um, yes, we'll have a link to it. Yes. And who, who gives that TED Talk? Her name is Chimamanda Adichie. And she talks a couple quotes from her. She says, the problem with stereotypes is not that they are necessarily untrue. It is that they are incomplete. It's that, yes. So, so you take one piece of information and you apply it to the whole group and their whole lives. You know, like we are all complex people. We are not defined by one thing. So she says, the problem with stereotypes is not that they are necessarily untrue, it is that they are incomplete. And then she also says, when you start with secondly, you have a completely different story. So to apply that to what's happened now, secondly, what's happening is, what happened was the death of George Floyd. But let's talk, we can't start there. We have to start with what happened first. And to me, that is the history of slavery in the U.S. That's Trayvon Martin. That's all of these things that have happened. Um, And the most recent one, Brianna, is it Brianna Taylor? I think that's her name. Yes, yes. So it's not just men, it's women too, you know? So Danger of a Single Story, TED Talk, a wonderful entry point. Um, There's also a Netflix movie that I just uh, saw that it's also on YouTube. So if you don't have Netflix, um, you can still access it. It's called 13th and it's named after the 13th Amendment and it's by Ava DuVernay. And so she gets into that clause. The clause. Uh Uh-huh. She gets into that and um, it's really good. And so that's the second. Can I ask real quick, did that clause... And it's um, practice of, you know, um, basically slavery as, uh, you know, punishment. Did that lead directly to prisons? Yes. Okay. Like were prisons a thing? Oh, yes. Pri- before? Prisons were a thing before. A thing. Okay. Okay. I wasn't sure if that. But it shifted, uh, it shifted to higher populations within the prisons. Okay. And, um, and since you asked that question, you know, the school to prison pipeline, the war on drugs, which was not about drugs at all, but it was about incarceration, it also exploded the numbers of people who were incarcerated. And so this term called the prison industrial complex 
Uh huh. Is related to that because there is profit in imprisoning people. The building, the the construction workers who, or not the construction workers, but the construction companies who build the buildings, uh, the telecommunications within the buildings, the food, the clothing, all of it. It's it's and there are for our our country utilizes for profit um, prisons. You can Google that. You can um, try to find companies that don't use prison labor. Yes. And for certain things if you want. Yes, yes, yes. And the movie really breaks that down for you. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay. Tell me the name of that again. It's called 13th. 13th. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. All right. After the Amendment. Yep. Okay. And then a book called White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. And she really breaks down what, and, and, and the full title of the book is white fragility, why it is so hard for white people to talk about racism. And so that, you know, that's another entry point. And there are so many other wonderful resources. um, But those are three that, you know, I thought I'd throw out, you know. Right. If you want to watch. Yeah. If you want to read. If you want to. If you only have 18 minutes. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. Thank you so much, Lorna. Oh, thank you, Jesse. I really appreciate it. This is, you know, I'm so glad to be here to be the 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 audience oh, thank <laughs> to this you. conversation and, you, and to learn. Yeah. And I want to lead by example of, I mean, I know there was other white people that, um, you know, just like you said, we need to talk about race. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we're part of this equation. Yeah. And when it's and uncomfortable... So- just be brave and stick yeah. stick with it yeah yep. it's yep. it's it's like our personal journey right it's the uncomfortable yep. stuff that's where the healing li- lies when we deny that it exists it only festers and gets worse mm-hmm. and that's and we're seeing evidence of that and have seen evidence of that i agree yeah for sure so thank you for you know for sharing your Gatorade <laughs> yes everyone everyone has their yeah. own Gatorade and everyone so, has their own Gatorade yeah. yeah find your Gatorade everyone thank you Jesse thank you Lorna all right everyone I'll see you with season two everything up to this point has led me here and there's no
to paint the picture. 